0: Good morning. I'm Alicia. I'm going to be speaking or reading the text that Claude will speak about today. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, Thank you, Alicia. Super excited to um, begin a new series actually called Spillover. And uh, it's going to be four weeks long. So we're starting it this morning. And uh, as you've already noted, possibly, that uh, we're beginning in uh, Uh, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, and it's going to be chapter 13 and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, this four-week series. And so um, just so you know, uh, if you're not familiar at all with 1 Corinthians, or the book of 1 Corinthians, it was uh, written by someone by the name of the Apostle Paul. And so he helped establish the church in Corinth. They've written him a letter. He's responding uh, with the this book called 1 Corinthians, and we're picking up, like I said, chapter 13, the first seven chapters this morning, and uh, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard some variation of chapter 13, whether it was what was just read or what it will be read in the weeks ahead, and uh, it kind of gets this, I don't know, this wedding vibe, this feeling that we need to... um, love other people in this amazing, profound way. But the reality is there's, there's something, uh, a dynamic that's taking place beneath the text or at face value that we're gonna explore a little bit this morning. And uh, before we get too much into that, I uh, I reflected a little bit on my uh, growing up years and the different moments that I have felt the need to feel um, impressive, I guess. Uh, Moments that I have felt like I need to prove something. And growing up, there was a, a phrase for it, and I catch myself saying it to my kids from time to time. And it's this, it's showing off. Have you ever heard that? Like, stop showing off. You're showing off. And I, I oh, as a kid, I was like, what? Like, even saying it right now, it just sounds like a weird phrase, showing off. Like, you know, <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, but there was, there was one uh, moment in particular. I'm not sure that it was necessarily, like, the deciding moment or the linchpin, per se. But it was a moment that was memorable in my life where I was kind of uh, welcomed at the adult table. You know what I mean? Like when parents come over, there's like the kids table and then there's the adult table. This is exacerbated in uh, holidays, you know? So probably if you're having an Easter dinner, Thanksgiving, Christmas, it's like, oh, there's the kids table. There's always like one dude that gets stuck there that's like ginormous and he's the one watching the kids like slapping heads together or whatever. But in either case, I remember one time in particular, I went in and uh, my parents had some friends over and I went into the kitchen and typically I was told to, you know, leave that we're talking or whatever. And this moment, I made some type of a comment that got people laughing. And so then I thought, uh, I belong here. And so I said something else that was a little bit funny. And then all of a sudden, it was like this stand-up comedian show, I will entertain all of my parents' friends. And so I just kept going right after another, and we're laughing, and I'm like, look at this, I'm part of the adult table. Huh? This is amazing, I belong here, I'm impressive, aren't I? And so uh, it went from like kind of showing off to them laughing with me. You know what I mean? Like you're being laughed with, and it's a bunch of adults, and you feel like, I actually belong here. So I was feeling pretty good about myself. I felt like I had crossed some uh, path of, um, I guess you'd say, acceptance into adulthood. And so my parents said it was time for bed, and I was sure that I didn't have to go to bed with the children. Um, but uh, they informed me that I did in fact have to go to bed, and so I just kind of played it off. And everyone laughed, and I was like, "See you guys later." You know, take care. A little coffee before I go? No, all right. And uh, so I headed off to bed, and um, I'm going to bed. And I'm honestly feeling pretty good about myself. I'm sitting there like, "Wow, I am like really impressive." And you know, I'm just kind of replaying the moments throughout the night, and smiling, and falling asleep, and uh, because I was still a kid, uh, I thought something would be kind of fun, and I would go to sleep from time to time with a sleeping bag, and so I'm laying on my bed in a sleeping bag, and so I'm kind of falling asleep in the sleeping bag, and uh, I fall nice and deeply asleep, and then um, something happens. Uh, I wake up, and I'm a dreamer, and you'll hear more of that in the years to come, I'm sure. Uh, I've, I, I have done some horrible, horrible things in my sleep. Uh, torn doors off the hinges, carried my wife across the house. Uh, just craziness, you know. Um, it's amazing how having children will change that. Although, uh, once you wake up and you have your newborn child in your hand, you don't remember how you picked her up. All of a sudden, you're like, ah, something needs to change in me. <laughs> So uh, I don't I don't dream like this quite as much anymore. Uh, it's amazing how that happens. But back as a kid, I would dream a lot. And so I wake up and um, all of a sudden, at the end of my sleeping bag, something stands up, I believe, in my sleeping bag. And I can feel it. There's something in my sleeping bag. And so I start screaming. I mean all out screaming as loud as I can. And I try to stand up to get out of the sleeping bag, but I can't. And so I just jump for the doorway. I'm screaming for my parents. I'm on the verge of tears. The way that my house is set up is I fall to the hallway, and then there's this long hallway out into the living room. And I am backing myself like this, trying to get out of the sleeping bag. But the sleeping bag is kind of like stuck to me. You know what I mean? So I'm swearing something's in there. There's nothing in there. And all of a sudden I find myself in the middle of the living room. My parents are standing there. Their friends are standing there. (laughs) And I'm screaming on the verge of tears. And I'm like, something's in my sleeping bag. Something's in my sleeping bag. And they're like, you're just asleep, hon. Everything's okay. I'm like, no, 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 no. So really something's in my bag. And then it happened. Something stands up in my sleeping bag. So you guys are like, what? And it's a dude. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That would have been amazing. (laughs) No, in this moment, this thing stands up and all of a sudden like this hush falls over everyone and they look and this thing is moving towards me and it comes up and it's my dog. And it comes out from under the sleeping bag with, his head, with her ears pulled back. And she's licking my face like, because ah, she just went on the ride of a lifetime down my hallway, you know, like in the bottom of a sleeping bag being whipped around. She's like, I don't know what I did, but I'm sorry. You know, and so I'm like, oh, it's just the dog. Oh, man. And I look around and I'm like, I am not quite as impressive as I thought I was, you know. I'm looking around completely humbled, totally embarrassed, and I'm thinking, now I have to pick up the sleeping bag and walk back to my, like, I'm totally good, it's just my dog, so (laughs) catch you guys later. (laughs) I have a question for you guys this morning. Why do we feel the need to seem impressive? Why do we feel the need to seem impressive? In every area, in every facet of our lives, it's nothing that we grow out of. It's not like all of a sudden we hit adulthood and then suddenly we don't feel the need to show ourselves as impressive anymore. We all feel the need to seem impressive if we're honest with ourselves. Christians and non-Christians alike, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey this morning, whether you would say that you're far from Christ and not even sure that God exists all the way up to the committed Christ follower and everywhere in between, there's this tension. We want to seem impressive. Now maybe the the group of people that we want to seem impressive to has changed. Maybe it's shrunk a little bit, maybe it's grown a little bit. But the fact remains, we want to hear things like, wow, look how hard she works. Super diligent, he is such a good father. She must work out. Where does she find the time? right? These are all things that we we want to hear. We want to believe that we're impressive in some way. He is so smart. Did you see her new car? Wow. We want to seem impressive. In a competitive and busy world, we want to seem impressive, but why? I want to submit to you that we need to seem impressive because it validates us. It validates our work, right? Put a lot of hard work in. We want validation for that. It validates our sacrifices. Some of us have sacrificed significant things, sometimes relational things. Sometimes we've sacrificed things we shouldn't have sacrificed. And So we want the validation all the more. In fact, if we can focus others on what makes us so impressive, maybe they won't notice how unimpressive we actually are the areas of our life that maybe we don't want everybody to know. We don't want everybody to acknowledge the difficulties and the struggles. And so let's just always show our best side. And I've said this before, social media just <laughs> throws a carrot right at that, right? The, the selfies and all the things we just, our best life now, it's this highlight reel of fakeness. <laughs> we work so hard to seem impressive. And that's exactly what the Church of Corinth was doing. They were working so hard to be impressive. We're talking about a church located in the hub of commerce in their day. It was the New York City of their day. They were so incredibly impressive and the church reflected that same culture. It was filled with gifted people, talented people. The church in in Corinth had a lot of wealthy people, a lot of educated people, and the church was growing. It was a growing, influential church in one of the largest hubs of the then known world. This church was impressive. The people in it thought, we're kind of impressive too. In fact, they were really impressive about their spirituality, so much so that they lorded it over others. They twisted it. And so chapter 13, if we look at the text, verses 1 through 2, and we unpack it a little bit, it says, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, because the Corinthians were just kind of running rampant with the idea of their spirituality, but have not love, I'm a noisy, gong, or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, this is a a community that was just focused on rhetoric, the the spoken word. And so if you have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, have all faith as to remove mountains, have not love, I am nothing. I'm nothing. You can be spiritually active and even morally behaved, but not truly transformed. That's what the text is telling us. Consider that for a second as we sit together in a church service, feeling uh, pretty spiritually active. (laughs) We showed up on Easter. Good for us. We can be spiritually active and even morally behaved, you could be a moral, good person, but not be truly transformed. Listen, this is horrifying, okay? <laughs> it's horrifying because your spiritual activity, my spiritual activity, our religiosity, if you will, has zero value. It has no value. You can look at spiritually, you can look spiritually impressive, but if your character and your motives, the motives of your heart, if they're corrupt. It's all noise. It's all noise. But this text, um, the, the noisy gong and clanging symbols were actually used Paul's using this language in a very specific and pointed way. You see, in Corinth at the time there was a lot of uh, idol worship going on. There was a lot of uh, different gods that would be worshipped, and one of the things that the pagan people would do—the people that did not believe that there was one true God, but that would go for altar, uh, go for uh, idolatry worship and stuff like that—one of the things they would do, one of their practices that were typical, is they would get symbols and gongs, and they would wail on these things throughout the day. Boom, boom, boom. Why would they be doing that? To get the gods' attention. They would be trying to get the God's attention. It was the practice of the pagan people to ring bells, to clang on cymbals, to make noise in order to get the God's attention so that they could get what they want from the God they were worshiping. So Paul is way more, he's saying way, way more than just, hey, it's all noise. Because we read this at, at face value and we just think, listen, if you do all this stuff, but you're not loving, then it's just, it's just noise. It's way more than that. He's saying, yeah, it's just noise and it doesn't count, but it actually equates to the equivalent of you just trying to get God's attention so that you can get what you want from God. It's corrupt. You're just screaming, I'm impressive, right, God? I prayed the prayer in the right order. Don't I get what I want? We treat God like some type of creepy Santa Claus. I've been good this year. I went to Easter at a church plant. I can't even hide there. Right? Come on, God. But listen, Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, I want to read because it correlates to this text. This is Jesus speaking. And he says this, the words of Jesus, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But God, I was so active. I mean, I, I was legit. I cast out demons, like, that was a big deal. Jesus saying, I don't even know you. That's horrifying. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason is still sin. That sounds depressing, right? It sounds scary. It gets worse. Aren't you guys glad you came this morning? Yay! It's like, here's, I found an Easter basket in my living room, and then I came here and heard this. <laughs> it gets worse. It does. Because Paul moves from gifts to virtues in a virtue-based society. And so in verse 3, he goes from this idea like, hey, you're really gifted, you're super impressive, none of it counts, to, oh, you're virtuous too. Verse 3, if I give away all that I have, And if I deliver my body to be burned, I deliver it up for the sake of the gospel, but I have not love, I gain nothing. What? So I can be spiritually active and morally good and it doesn't equal anything. I can sacrifice and it still doesn't count? That's what Paul's saying. In today's society, we call this social justice. And we get amped up about it. And I think we should. We should do good things. But if we're doing good things to try to earn some form of salvation or work out our own righteousness, it equates to nothing. You do so much good. But what's your motive? What's your motive in your heart? Your heart so that people will be pretty impressed what I'm doing right now. I mean, I'm a philanthropist. It's crazy, right? I know. So impressive. This phrase, I gain nothing, is actually passive in the original Greek. And it literally means it counts for nothing. It means it doesn't count. Now, some of us are tempted to declare our self-righteousness. I mean, to declare our righteous motives. <laughs> and uh, the temptation in our hearts and minds to say, well, no, wait, now I do good things and I have right motive. So I agree. Claude, it's a good thing you're saying this because there's a lot of people in here <laughs> that are not as good as I am. I mean, wow, my motives. <laughs> Grab a cup of coffee now. Sit at the big boy table. Just kidding. It's amazing. It's amazing. How quick we wanna group ourselves with the righteous. How quickly we wanna say, but my motives really are good. No, like for real, they're good. So you have love? Don't answer the question in the back of your mind. So you can say like, yeah, no, I I fall on the side of love here. Well, let's see. Let's just give ourselves the quick little test. Verses four through seven, Uh, love is patient and kind. Uh, It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truths. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's you? That's you? I'm going to ask your spouse. Just kidding. (laughs) I'll ask your kids, your sister, your brother, and be like, no, don't really. Are you patient all the time? and kind. You never envy. You don't boast. Not arrogant, never rude. No. You you don't insist on your own way, right? Nah. You're not irritable, never resentful. You don't rejoice in the wrongdoing or the shortcomings of others is basically what it means. You rejoice only in truth. You uh, bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and, I'm certain that you probably endure all things. I told you it would get worse, right? It's crushing, isn't it? When we think, wait a second, so what it is that we have to do is we have to always be ca- always be patient, always be kind, never envy, never boast. like that's what we have to do in order for it to count. It's crushing. Why? Because like the Corinthian Christians we are the opposite of love. It would be super easy for me to say, so be like this. Paul put it in there to just, listen, be kind. Stop being rude. You wanna go to hell? (laughs) Try harder. You can do it, come on, pony up buddy right? Super easy to do that. You leave here with a sweet guilt trip rolling up your sleeves saying, I'm going to work out my righteousness. You'll probably make it to the parking lot before you're like, seriously, can I have that cookie? Like, I grab that cookie for me. It's mine. Because I need it my way. Darn it! Perform. We can't do it. But we want to so bad we want to impress God. In fact, some of us keep distance from a relationship with God because we feel like we're not impressive enough. And so we believe this lie that the gap in the chasm is too large, that we could never do enough good to earn his love or his acceptance. And so therefore, it's easier just to avoid or distance. Can never live up to this. Can. Thanks for coming to Centerway. No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there because there's something that you need to notice about verses four through seven that is profound and yet simple. Paul personifies love. In the Greek, they're actually transitive verbs, which means that love actually does these things. Love is patient. Kind. You see, Paul is personifying love because love is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. This is not a list of to dos. This is a list of done. You see, Jesus, he was in the garden the night that he was betrayed, literally tormenting over the reality of what was awaiting him, and said, Is there any way this cup can pass? But nonetheless, Lord, your will, not mine, does not insist on his own way. When people came and, and betrayed him, he kept no record of wrongdoing. He wasn't irritable or resentful. He humbled himself and he went as accusations were made against him that had no business being made against him. He had lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could never live. And when he hung on that cross, one of the people hanging next to him called out and he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't rude. He was patient. He's patient with you. He's patient with me. And when he breathed his last, and he died the death that we deserve that you and I deserve because we are the opposite of love, because we are so corrupt in and of ourselves. He said it is finished. The mission that he had set out to do, motivated simply by love and love alone, he laid down his life for you and for me. But the story doesn't end there. And the reason we gather in this place today is because three days later, They went looking for a body that couldn't be found. You see, Jesus didn't simply pay the penalty for your sin. He had victory over death. And so today, you can find victory in your life, not because of your best efforts, not because you're rolling up your sleeves and trying to love harder and to be more behaved, but because of that which Christ has done. It's done. For you, for me, in our place. He is our Savior. He's our Savior. And so how does this change our situation? How does it change and inform our everyday? Well, here's something that society abroad will agree on. We learn to love by being loved. There's been some horrifying tests that have verified that with even the youngest of children. That when they're unloved, they lose the capacity to love. So I want to submit to you this morning that you can't change yourself to be impressive. To be lovable. But that love itself, love himself, changes you. Jesus changes you. You see, when we realize the reality that God is so patient with us in our brokenness, when we really, at the core of who we are, acknowledge his patience and his kindness, and we walk in the freedom that that awards us, it's amazing how we can respond differently to people that we want to be impatient with, (laughs) that we want to be rough with, because when we've walked in the love that Christ has for us, it spills over into those we interact with. You see, the love that Jesus extends as we increase our proximity to him and we allow the truth of the gospel to transform our very heart and our motives, it literally spills over onto everyone we come in contact with. You're here this morning by divine appointment divine appointment. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Jesus rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. So we can put Jesus in a little box and we can categorize him into something that we interact with on Sundays when we sit in rows. Or we can allow Jesus to be the center, Lord, and leader of our life and allow that to spill over into every area of, of our life, every facet of every relationship to inform our marriage, to inform our friendships, to inform our jobs, to inform the way that we deal with our finances, to inform the words that we speak, all of things. But (laughs) when we instead are trying to work out our own salvation, we look at spirituality as a list of do's and don'ts. And we say, listen, I can't behave well enough. And if you're gonna play that game, you're always gonna fall short. So if we're here by divine appointment, which I believe, one of the things we say around here often is that the, the text requires something from us. And so we can look at the, the scripture this morning and maybe have a new perspective on it a little bit. Realize that we don't have to be crushed by the idea of trying to love, but instead we can be transformed by the reality of who love is. A question to ask you as you leave this place as you get in your cars and head home or whatever circles you find yourself in consider these questions this question sorry how does Jesus resurrection change my current reality how does Jesus' resurrection change my current reality if we keep it distant then it informs nothing If it's true, if it is in fact true that Jesus was who he said he was and he died the death that history tells us he died and that he was resurrected on the third day, if that's true, what are the implications in your life? For some of you this morning, it's probably to surrender your life to him. Say, you know what, I've been living my life for myself and it's a lot of trying to be impressive and falling pretty short more often than not. And so this morning, maybe your application is to say, I want Jesus to be the Lord and leader of my life. I want to surrender my life to him. And if that's you this morning, I'm not going to make you identify yourself or anything like that. It can happen in the quietness of the seat you're sitting in. That you would just pray a prayer right where you're at and say, God, I'm a a sinner, but you died for my sins. Would you forgive me? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. It's that easy to begin a relationship. There's next steps, and I'd love to talk to you about those. tell you more about it later. But is that your application this morning to cross that line of faith? For others of you, maybe your application is to be transformed by understanding his love. Oh yeah, God loves them. God loves them. But, I don't know, I'm not so sure I'm lovable. Have you allowed the reality of who God is to saturate the way you even see yourself? Do you understand God's love enough to have it influence The way you deal in every relationship. The decisions that you make. The way you respond. It's a journey. It's not like, oh, now I get it. Now I'm the kindest, most patient, least envious, non-boastful person I've ever met. No. It's a journey of being wrecked every morning by the reality that you are so deeply loved. To say, God, would you you walk with me today so that I could reflect your love to others? Would you help me understand that I am lovable so that I can then be lovely and a lover of others? Maybe for others of you this morning, you say, I've crossed that line of faith and I am wrecked every morning by that reality, that I focus my heart and life on this. I understand his love. Then to you, I would ask, who needs to know that love? how are you spilling over? Are you living life on mission or are you just sitting there like, love me, love me, love me? (laughs) Come on, Jesus. I love me some Jesus and he loves me back. (laughs) Jesus did not go to the cross and die. Raise again so that you could just feel better about yourself. There's a mission. There's a purpose. Are you living your one and only life on purpose? Or are you just trying to be impressive? Because you know what? Impressive comes and goes. But if you're purposely living on mission and you're allowing the love of Jesus to saturate your heart and soul and you're allowing that to spill over onto other people and you function as someone that has been sent, that's a game changer. So don't miss it this morning. There's something for every single one of us, as is always the case. So I want you to consider, what are the implications for you? What does the application look like? How does Jesus' resurrection change your current reality? Let's bow our heads. You can keep your eyes open if you'd like. I know I get easily distracted if I shut my eyes. So. But mostly if you could just look to the ground so you're not distracted. I want you to focus and consider the implications. As you consider those implications this morning, the worship team is kind of preparing themselves. As they prepare themselves to go into some songs, we're going we're gonna to sing as a, as a response to the word this morning, a response of who Jesus is and what he's done the reality of that love coming alive in our hearts and minds and so I want you to consider is it time for you to surrender your life is it time for you to to pray that prayer and ask Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life is it time to allow love to really transform the way you do things who Jesus is to inform your everyday pray a prayer and then we're gonna sing together Heavenly Father we come before you this morning we lay our lives down we thank you Lord for who you are for what it is that you have done so that we can find freedom we can find acceptance in you because of who you say we are so we surrender to you this morning Declare your love.